0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Meradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining me now is my good friend, retired United States Air Force Lieutenant General Dave Deptula, the Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies Uh, Sir, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Good to be here, Vago, and uh, look forward to chatting with you.
0: Uh, As as always, it was terrific seeing you in person uh, down uh, in Orlando for the Air Warfare uh, Symposium and looking forward to our conversation uh, today. Uh, And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, including uh, at the Air Force Association's Air Warfare Symposium recently, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall and General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. Dave, uh, last week you and I talked a little bit about some of these issues about uh, use of air power uh, in uh, Ukraine, yesterday Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky uh, called on America to spearhead a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Uh, and the question is whether such a move would trigger a wider war between Russia uh, and Ukraine. You've been talking about this uh, and thinking about it certainly for, for some some time and uh, uh, the Air Force magazines, uh, peerless uh, reporter John Turpak wrote a story today in which you were quoted saying that you thought that that was a bad idea. Uh, on the other hand, there were those who argued, look, Ukraine remains a sovereign nation with a democratically elected leadership. It's calling on the international community for help against the barbaric aggressor. Uh, why not help them? What is so problematic about taking this step in your in your mind?
1: Well, because it would involve uh Direct US and NATO conflict with Russian combatants. Period. So if if NATO and the US want to go to war with Russia, um, then a nose fly zone is the way to do it. Um, It's not a some sort of magic wand as a way to disperse the enemy without bloodshed. It's nothing could be further from reality. Um, and setting up a no-fly zone is essentially a full-fledged combat operation that is designed to deprive the enemy of the use of its air power. Period. Dot. So it involves direct and sustained war fighting.
0: Uh, so yeah. I mean, that's the short answer. Um, well, I want to get a little bit uh, deeper into this, right? I mean, one of the other. Uh, elements of this is that the Russians actually are um, attacking a lot through their artillery, through their rocket artillery, right, which um, has a prime place in their order of battle. The airplanes are dropping some dumb bombs uh, at this point. Is that another complicating factor in this, that it's less about the airplanes at this point, but how uh, Russia is just, you, you know, b- you know, targeting apartment blocks and all of this using old fashioned artillery? or rocket artillery?
1: Once again, if I may, you're digressing from the original question, which is, is a no-fly zone a good thing or not? Uh, Dealing with Russian artillery that is being used to slaughter innocent men, women, and children is another thing. Uh, But if the policy position of the US leadership and the NATO leadership is to avoid direct conflict with the russians uh then putting up a no-fly zone is not a way to do that because the point i want to get across is a no-fly zone involves direct or will involve would involve
0: direct conflict with the russians um Uh, right i i completely appreciate uh that point i guess what i'm saying is that you know how how extensively are the Russians using air power in this um, in this campaign, right? So even if you decided that you're gonna take that risk, is it something that would actually be as effective as we want it to be, I guess is my question. Well, the short answer
1: to that is yes, because the Russians are using air power. They're using, they're flying on the order right now of 200 to 300 sorties a day, Um, I don't necessarily know if all of those are over Ukraine, uh, but the most recent example of the use of their air power um, was to bomb the facility uh, in Maripool that was uh, clearly marked as housing civilians and children. uh, And they did that um, with uh, weapons dropped from an airplane. So if you want to prevent those kinds of Uh, atrocious actions that the Russians are conducting with aircraft, then yes, a no-fly zone could be effective in preventing them. That's why it's important for the United States and the friends of Ukraine to supply them with the air defense capabilities such that they can do their best to maintain uh, a degree of air superiority
0: Uh, in critical elements over their country. Um, Let me take you to the question, uh, Dave, which you brilliantly uh, just queued up, right? What are the capabilities and systems uh, that the Ukrainians need at this point, right? I mean, the uh, administration in shooting down the the Polish proposal to swap their MiG-29s with Ukraine for American F-16s via uh, the US airbase in Ramstein, Germany was shot down by the administration saying, hey, Ukrainians at this point don't need more MiGs. Uh, what they need are more anti-armor, anti-air. And indeed, the administration called on Eastern European nations, hey, send over your air, higher altitude air and missile defense systems, uh, which are common with the Ukrainians because they're using them very effectively. And the president even authorized uh, switchblade uh, autonomous uh, strike uh, drones, uh, which should prove to be very effective. From, From your standpoint, um you know and if you want to talk about the mig deal you can i thought it was interesting that at a csi event a csis event yesterday uh retired air force general uh, joe ralston um a very highly decorated vietnam combat pilot said look i flew those mig 29s you know two decades ago and they were crap then they were sold for two euros a piece from the Germ- by the germans to the poles Part them out and send the parts there, the Ukrainians could use them. So that was kind of his take on the MiG 29 issue. What are, what are the kind of capabilities the international community has to be furnishing the Ukrainians with, both for defensive as well as offensive purposes?
1: Okay, well, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, first, uh, you, you know, I I know General Alston very well, and uh, I would suggest to you that there are a lot of improvements that have been made to MiG 29s in the 30 years than since he flew them. Um, I flew against them uh, in an F-15, and I can tell you the MiG-29 is a very capable aircraft. And we have to be careful um, about mirror imaging and imposing uh, U.S. air power expectations uh, and capabilities that we are used to operating with Uh, on others. The fact of the matter is the MiG-29 is the predominant air defense aircraft that's operated by the Ukrainians. So it's a bit arrogant to uh, make comments that, you know, it's not worth anything when in fact they had, Ukrainians have used the MiG-29s very effectively and have shot down Russian aircraft with their MiG-29s. So we got to be careful about I mean, I've had other people tell me, well, you know, you know, they're not really anything compared to a uh, to a to an F-35 or an F-22. Well, that's a ridiculous argument. The Ukrainians aren't going to operate F-35s and F-22s. But let me
0: get back to the subject area. But by the way, just parenthetically, I would just add, we should have done it. We should have done it quietly. No press releases. And just transferred the capability to another side. Yeah, well, nation. look,
1: that's a whole that other that's a that's a whole nother set of things that that went cattywampus here. That was started by our Secretary of State without consulting the polls, and then the polls responded by making the surprise pronouncement that okay, I mean, so there's a there is some diplomatic exchange of of friendly fire there, if you will. And you're exactly right; all should have been done undercover. You spray the, the, the tails with gray paint. Once they get into Ukraine, no one knows um, where a particular MiG-29 came from. And the fact of the matter is, the reason the Ukrainians could benefit from them is they need them to sustain their air force. When you use fighter aircraft in combat and you fly them hard and often, they tend to break. So it, it, at a fundamental basis, the additional MiG-29s would help sustain the Ukrainian defense against Russian aggression by providing spare parts, and the the few that may be uh, recoverable from an operational perspective can be used uh, to replace some of the losses that the Ukrainians have sustained. So let's put that aside for a second, uh, because the argument has gotten public, and once it does, uh, it tends to to go into silly land, Uh, but it should have been a no-brainer. Um, with respect to the systems that the Ukrainians can benefit from, you highlighted the fact uh, that the kind of surface-to-air missile systems that they have been operating, the S-300s, once again, they don't need the target tracking radars or the, or the, the missile launchers themselves. They need replenishment of the actual missiles. Uh, and so hopefully that's being worked uh, again uh, out, of the, out of the media and that uh, a transfer will occur. Um, With respect to um, other systems, you mentioned the fact that uh, as part of the uh, arms resupply uh, transfer that the president uh, discussed yesterday, uh, there were a hundred supposed drones. I would suggest to you, and in fact, the army regulations categorized switchblade as a missile, not a drone. And in fact, it's more appropriately termed a loitering munition. It's launched out of a a mortar tube, and there are two variants. The first one's only about six pounds and carries a warhead that's no bigger than a hand grenade. Um, It only has a range of six miles and an endurance about 10 minutes. Uh, The second variant weighs about 50 pounds And is capable of halting light armor, has a range of about 25 miles, and can loiter for about 20 minutes. Uh, The question is why are you only giving them 100 of these? Uh, That might be useful uh, in a localized area um, or for partial defense of a neighborhood uh, in some of their larger cities, but it's not really sufficient to make a dent in uh, the the challenges that the Ukrainians are facing against the, uh, the Russians. Uh, the fact of the matter is uh, we ought to be sending drones to Ukraine that can make a difference. I mean, I think you've heard about and uh, seen in the press, the effectiveness of the Turkish TB2 uh, drones. They've been very successful. Uh, now imagine if Ukraine had access to US-built MQ1 Gray Eagles Uh, Predators, and MQ-9 Reapers, Uh, these aircraft have four times the payload, 10 to 12 times the range, the ability to fly across the entire country of Ukraine, and they can stay aloft for a day at a time, not just a couple of hours of a TB2 or the 10 to 20 minutes of a switchblade. Uh, So um, that's something that we need to consider uh, seriously. Um, I, and, and so let me pause there and see if you have any questions.
0: Yeah, in, 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 indeed, right? I mean, we talked to Dave Alexander, uh, who is uh, the General Atomics Aeronautical Systems president. And one of the things that we discussed was, right, uh, the company is celebrating its 30th anniversary. Its first product was the NAT. Uh, and the Bayraktar is actually a nap that the company sold and, and the Turks uh, have been uh, licensed uh, producing. Uh, and it is uh, a very, very effective uh, system, right? It's small, it's inexpensive. Uh, if it does get shot down, it's easily, uh, easily replaced. Uh, and I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, it's it's great, a great headline thing to say, we're going to send this uh, uh, loitering munition there But actually, if it's not in the kind of volume that matters, uh, I mean, it it is abundantly clear that the Ukrainians are expending significant quantities of javelins, significant quantities of N-laws. And if you are fighting this kind of a distributed action, uh, numbers really matter, right? I mean, you can't just have a handful of of switchblade gunners uh, that are out there on the on the on the front line, especially given how uh, brutally um, this campaign is is being uh, waged, or or rather, I should say, at least on one side, the passion with which it's raised. On the other side, it's just raw brutality uh, that is uh, applying itself. What yeah, are, no, well, um- you make my point. I
1: mean, we're giving them two thousand javelins and one hundred switchblades.
0: Really, um, what's with that? Well, so, so the, the whole question is that the administration is trying to do this by basically walking a tightrope, right? The uh, American people want more action, but they don't want to go to war uh, against the Russians, right? I mean, that's where we started off with this. Uh, it is clear that they are privy uh, to intelligence, uh, right? I mean, we, we have been um, uh, revealing insights about what the Russian leadership is going to do uh, when and how. Uh, So there is a sense that if the administration says this would cross a red line, that they may actually know something that we don't know about whether or not that's that's a red line or not. But what's the mindset that we need and some of the other capabilities, especially if we look around the world, right I mean a lot of our allies and partners also have capability that can be brought to bear right I mean the Brits uh, are exp- exporting the unlaw, which is a terrific system and by some accounts superior to the javelin. Uh, that's a, 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 a Saab uh, product. Uh, you know what are some other systems that we should be considering getting over there. And then I wanna talk about some of the US capabilities that we're bringing to bear that are clearly uh, acting in support of Ukrainian forces as well.
1: Well, again, uh, I
0: think that
1: the, as you mentioned, um, all the resupply that can be done from the variety of different weapon systems that are out there um, ought to be uh, shipped as rapidly as possible to Ukraine. My perspective uh, is that every weapon that we provide Ukraine is defensive. Uh, Ukraine's not the aggressor here, the Russians are. Uh, And you you make a point on the intelligence piece, but to date, I would share with you that uh, it at least appears that Putin's rhetoric is doing more to deter action by NATO to assist Ukraine than NATO is doing to deter Putin from his atrocious inhumane assaults against Ukrainian people. So I get it. Of course, the United States and NATO should be cautious, but they have got to stop rationalizing their lack of transfer of weapons that make a difference than by by saying it might be risky or dangerous. Um, So the other point that I think needs to be made um, is the actions uh, in deferring to Putin, uh, you know, failure to, to, to shift some of these weapons uh, for defensive purposes because of fear of his use of nuclear weapons is sending a message to every potential adversary out there that they need to acquire nuclear weapons as rapidly as possible because U.S. won't interfere
0: with their malign activity as a result. Um, I and uh, I should uh, just let the audience know that uh, I'm going to have a piece uh, un, un, unknown to me, uh, you were going to make this argument uh, today, Dave, uh, but I'll make uh, some of those uh, same points uh, that we have to really stop self deterring ourselves from from action. I mean, at this point, uh, the guy's hiding behind a nuclear shield and is going to push us um, you know, off the stage if he can, if we allow him. And at some point, uh, there will, there there is likely um, going to be um, or there may be a confrontation and we can't be averse to it because if it's, if it's going to happen at some point, you'd better be ready for it uh, when it does and, and not uh, take the specific actions that will actually embolden him, which, which is, which is the problem. Let me, yeah, let me, me let you. me,
1: let me take, let Go me,
0: let me take what you just said one step further. Uh,
1: and, it's part of the decision calculus of what we've been discussing. And that's, you know, what should the United States send over and, you know, what are the issues at stake relative to, you know, concerns with pushing Putin too far. Uh, And we, in thinking in a broader strategic context, um, you know, this guy's a a bully at some point. uh, He needs to be uh, stood up against. So, is it best to provide Ukraine uh, the capability to do that? Um, or, you know, do we wait if, if, in fact, we don't provide them with sufficient defensive capability and Russia does uh, overrun them? Although, uh, fortunately, it seems like the tide has been turning and that's less likely the case. But in case they did, Putin's not going to be stopped there. So at some point, right. NATO is going to get dragged into this. Would it not be better strategy to do everything we can uh, to allow uh, Ukraine uh, to uh, uh, be successful in their defense against Russia? So my, which gets, takes me back to my point of I think all's fair in providing weapons support to Ukraine up to... U.S.-NATO direct participation against the Russians in combat. Like I said, Putin's not going to be stopped without resistance. And the Ukrainians, quite frankly, this has evolved beyond a regional issue. They're fighting on behalf of the complete free world, and therefore we ought to support them to the greatest degree possible, not the least that we can get by with, according to a bunch of Pentagon lawyers. We're a superpower and we need to start acting like one.
0: Uh, I couldn't agree with you uh, more on that uh, sentiment. Um, We're running short uh, and I've got three uh, key questions to ask you. Um, Where do you stand on the notion of establishing um, some form of Berlin uh, airlift uh, for uh, food, medicine, uh, fuel, uh, water or you know purification equipment for uh, some of the communities that the Russians uh, have surrounded and are laying siege to uh, with uh, the specific goal uh, of causing mass uh, civilian casualties. And indeed, right, I mean, you talked about the Mariupol Theater bombing, uh, 1,200 people in that bomb shelter uh, that uh, they knew were there, but also all manner of acts of terror, 10 people waiting on a breadline uh were uh shot to death uh people who are trying to surrender or trying to seek safe passage uh are, are 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 being shot to death so in in every sense uh vladimir putin uh, and all the way down the chain of command are war criminals and all of this is being documented but from your standpoint where do you stand on the idea of setting up um limited uh or or even large-scale uh, airlift operations that um you know, at a CSI event, CSIS event uh, yesterday with four uh, former SAC-uers, uh, you know, the argument was they can, those airplanes can be escorted by combat aircraft. And as long as nobody shoots at them, we won't shoot at them. Well, once again, we take
1: us right back into the no-fly zone argument. So if the Russians are so despicable in the context that they will bomb a known facility that is protecting women and children, what makes you think That they wouldn't shoot down the aircraft that are participating in this relief, uh, civilian humanitarian relief effort. I mean, it it, again, it kind of displays the arrogance of, oh, hey, we'll just set up a humanitarian corridor and the Russians will comply with it. So you're right in, you're back into the discussion with respect. You said, well, they'll be escorted by combat aircraft. Well, guess what? They're going to be engaged by Russian aircraft. So I I think it's worthy of continued exploration, but it's going to have to be something that is supported by, called for, and participated in with a variety of different United Nations under the aegis of the United Nations. Uh, And that will give us some indicator of, well, hey, are the Russians on board with supporting this kind of humanitarian relief? Uh, and so these, you know, at what point uh, do, does the community of nations stand up to this uh, horrific behavior of the Russians? And it's not going to stop them by sending in food and water and blankets and medical equipment. And I dare say that the Russians would have no compunction with shooting down any participant of that humanitarian airlift.
0: So how does this end, Dave? How does this end in, in your mind, right? It ha- Russia is under extraordinary uh, financial and economic pressure, the likes of which no nation has faced uh, to, in anybody's memory. Um, Putin has had to address uh, arrest uh, senior FSB members. There's discontentment in the army. Um, the Russian army has proven itself to be a remarkably paper tiger, um, right? With everything from tires that are shoddy and failing to tactic, I mean, to the point where the Ukrainian defenders are like, what the heck are these guys even doing? Like, what are they doing? Um, we're being baffled in our intelligence uh, uh, patrols, right? Um, how does this end? And what does this do to the notion? Right. I mean, should NATO be as worried about the Russian conventional military capability as we have been? Um, the short answer is
1: no. I mean, that's surprising everybody. Uh, but the fact, of, excuse me, the fact of the matter is uh, it's yet to be determined how this is going to end. Although I would suggest to you, and I go back to earlier comments and kind of tie up the importance of providing the Ukrainians. Uh, the kind of equipment that will make a difference and allow them to continue to defend themselves and, in fact, reverse the assaults of the uh, uh, Russian uh, army uh, and uh, ultimately uh, cause this entire invasion force and set of forces to collapse uh, I think that at a strategic level, we're, we've already passed a turning point. Um, uh, Putin uh, has uh, essentially relegated himself to the dustbin of history. The question is how, and you asked it, you know, how's, what is endgame here? I think that's yet to be determined. Uh, But at some point, we're going to have to either provide the Ukrainians the ability to defend themselves to the point where they cause the Russian invasion to collapse. Uh, And if not, uh, then at some point, NATO is going to have to get engaged. Uh, Because at the end of all of this, got to ask the question, are we going to be saddled with the reality that we let Putin kill thousands, if not millions of innocent Ukrainians? while we hid behind the fig leaf that uh, they were not NATO members. Um, that's not a great legacy for the alleged leaders of the free world.
0: Um, I, I would I would uh, agree uh, with you on that. And then, of course, the other concern is uh, that allowed to succeed here, Putin is right. I mean, Putin has done every single thing he said he would do, right? Um, so even if he gets a negotiated settlement and Ukraine agrees to um, you know, having a neutral future, right? Zelensky's already suggested that, uh, you know, NATO is not in the cards. I don't think you should have publicly said that, by the way. Uh, and at the, at the same time, the Russians are having their maximalist position. No, 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 no. You recognize our sovereignty over Crimea, Donbas, Luhansk, and the new corridor uh, that we have created that connects all of this stuff. Uh, and maybe they say, and any other part of Ukraine we have thus far seized is where we'll stop. Uh, right. I mean, doing any of that rewards him. And then, of course, the concern is that he moves against, tries to set up a land corridor into Kaliningrad, uh, for example, which which has always been a fear or, or take a nibble uh, of territory elsewhere. Are you convinced that if he acts against the NATO border, that the NATO alliance is going to respond? Do, do you think that that will be a, a red line? And do you think that that is a red line that he will still try to cross, given that his goal is to return? Uh, NATO to its pre-1997 borders? I I would hope
1: that the president would stand behind his statement that we'll defend every inch of NATO territory. I'll just leave it at that. Even if Putin was, for example, you know, to detonate a low yield nuke over the Black Sea somewhere as a test. I'm sure that NATO slash the United States um, would respond, but the fact of the matter is, Uh, we need to stand up to Mr. Putin. And the best way to do that
0: is to adequately arm uh, the Ukrainian uh, people uh, to reverse the invasion of Russia. Thanks very much, Dave. Always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Look forward to having you back on again soon. Have a great aerospace power kind of day.